Before we get to the show, I want to remind all of you that we have an awesome data analytics conference coming up called the Disney Data and Analytics Conference. This conference is taking place August 28th and 29th in Orlando, Florida. Join the Big Data Beard team and get $400 off your pass using our promo code DataBeard-2018 at registration. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Big Data Beard. This is our podcast where we explore the trends, technology, and talented people making big data a big deal. This is Corey Minton from the Big Data Beard, and I am pleased to have a couple of guys from one of the most interesting organizations in this uh, big data uh, systems management and, and, and orchestration space that I've, that I've found, and it's called Blue Data. And you've heard Blue Data on with the Big Data Beard team before, but they've got some great announcements that we want to cover today. And I'm excited to have Tom Phelan, the chief architect for Blue Data, and Joel Baxter, a senior engineer from Blue Data. Tom and Joel, thanks for being on the show. How are we doing today, gentlemen? Good, thanks, Corey. Thank you. Doing good. Excellent. So, Tom, you've got a you've got a pretty interesting background. Why don't you Why don't you start us off? Give us a little uh, little introduction to who you are and uh, kind of where you've been and what you're doing for Blue Data now. Sure. Thanks. So, I'm a chief architect and co-founder. My uh, associate Kumar Srikanti and I left VMware about six years ago. When we wanted to do something different, we found a real interesting space where big data, AI, ML merged with container virtualization. Prior to that, I, I spent 10 years as an architect at VMware on ESX, and my history goes back in, you know, for 20 years in the industry with storage optimization in Linux and Unix. I was one of the architects or developers at that time on the XFS file system. So I have a long background in, in storage and a great interest in, in virtualization and big data. Very cool. Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting space. You kind of rode the wave with VMware as they were going through some of this this industry disruption. Like, I don't know if we've seen in technology before, what we're seeing now in big data and AI and machine learning. So that's super cool. Joel, how about yourself? What's uh, Give us a little story about you and uh, what you do for the, the folks at Blue Data. I, I guess um, I'm also ex-VMware. I worked at VMware for about nine years and... Uh, I was under Kumar for the last part of that, also working with Tom. I guess initially I worked a lot in uh, virtual machine provisioning, like managing vMotion, storage vMotion, then moved into things like the vNetwork distributed switch. Um, always working in virtual center, so like the management area at VMware. And then after, after I left VMware, uh, Kumar and Tom, who I was both very familiar with, were starting up Blue Data, so it was kind of a, an easy, easy choice for me to to switch over and get in on the ground floor of that. Um, and Blue Data, I'm doing some similar things. So taking all the kind of the, the primitives, the, the lower level services that we have to work with and wrapping them up in some sort of management layer, presenting the kind of higher level model that we want our end users and our administrators to deal with rather than having to dig down into you know, things like network tunnels or, or specific container settings. Very cool. Well, excellent. Well, before we get into the some of the recent announcements, I, Tom, I wondered if you'd spend a little bit of time with us to give us a background on on why you started this company, Blue Data, and where you uh, where you see its real unique place in the market. What do you think that 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 place is? 
Sure, sure. So uh, when Kamar and I were at Blue Data, excuse me, at VMware, um, I was involved in trying to get containers, excuse me, once again, uh, the vocabulary here shifts, but trying to get virtual machines to talk well or to communicate at a high performance uh, mechanism with cloud storage. Because we could see that VMware had solved many issues for the customer. So VMware had made it very easy to run applications in a virtualized environment. What one of the areas at the time that it was not excelling in was those applications that had intense storage IO activity. So there was a, at the time, there was a high penalty for an application running within a virtual machine to access huge amounts of data. You're talking about terabytes worth of data. So what we wanted to do is introduce a technology that would allow applications running in virtual machines to access their data more rapidly. And what our thought was is uh, we were trying to avoid what's called the washing machine effect. When you have multiple applications running within a virtual machine or a collection of virtual machines on the same host, they send their I.O. requests down to a common storage architecture. So whether it's a SAN or a block device or what have you, those I.O. requests from the multiple different applications get commingled. That's like a washing machine. And then when they're sent to the enterprise storage, the enterprise storage doesn't know how to optimize the issuing of those IOs to the physical media itself. So the performance is slow. You can't do caching. You can't do read-aheads. You can't do write-behinds because the storage device at that time could not make heads or tails of this IO flow that was coming down to it from these collection of applications running in these collections of VMs. So, great. So what Blue Data said, hey, Kumar and I had this idea. Let's go ahead and insert some intelligence into the storage layer that allows the application to tell the storage device, hey, here is my stream of I.O. requests and I will optimize them for you. So I will do the read ahead. I will do the write behind. I will do this optimization so you don't have to. The net result is the application running in the virtual environment runs faster and the load on the enterprise class storage is reduced. So. This was, our, this was our idea when we first started Blue Data, and that's what we did. So when we, we spawned the company and uh, we, we started to, to develop our product, our product, uh, interestingly, uh, is named EPIC, E-P-I-C, that stands for uh, Elastic Personal um, Instant Cluster. That will become more apparent of why we chose that name in, in a few minutes, but let me just kind of walk you through the evolution of, of Blue Data. So, so we wrote this substrate, this, this uh, caching layer and kind of plug into to an application that would, that would take this. It would take hints from the application. The application would tell us, hey, I'm going to be a, a read-intensive application. My working set is going to be 600 megabytes worth of data. I need this many um, buffers read-ahead or this much write-behind. And so once it informed the caching layer of this, we could then say, okay, we'll take the appropriate steps to optimize the storage I.O. Uh, so that we'll get you the data as quickly as possible. So that, that, that's what our technology was. It was why we, we founded Blue Data. When we had this technology working in our labs, we said, okay, now we need a kind of go-to-market strategy. At that time, 
we had Hadoop, uh, big data Hadoop distributed applications, and they were the most I.O., storage I.O. intensive applications that were around. And we said, okay, if we can demonstrate our caching enhancement with the Hadoop application, well, then it should be a slam dunk for any other application out there. And that's what we did. We said, okay, we took Hadoop and we started to automate the bring up of Hadoop into, at that time, we were using OpenShift as a virtual machine platform. And, and so we came out with our first version of Epic, which was the ability to bring up Hadoop clusters with all the Hadoop services running in uh, OpenStack virtual machines. And then we had our IO layer, which, which had kind of developed a marketing term to be DTAP for data tap and C node for caching node. But those, those were all kind of marketing terms that, that generated over time. And that, that's what we, we deployed. And they said, hey, this is, we got some traction in the marketplace. People were very interested in an automated way to bring up a Hadoop cluster on a virtual environment with this storage IO acceleration. And we could start looking at things as compute and storage separation. That was completely novel for a big data distribution and deployment you know, at that time, six years ago. Everybody was co-locating compute and storage on the same physical hardware. Now we were showing them how you could bring up your Hadoop compute services in virtual machines and connect to remote storage and still get high performance uh, for your application. And so then things evolved from there. About a year after we had delivered our first product, we realized, you know, we don't really need all the overhead of a VM. And so that's when we switched to containers. We can get this, the compute abstraction uh, for, for the application in a container and not pay this overhead. So that's what we did. We did a quick shift and now we're on a, a container platform. We developed this term called big data as a service, BDAS. That was, that's the buzzword. And we, we moved on from there. We started supporting um, artificial intelligence and machine learning and deep learning clusters. So not only Hadoop, but we support Spark and we support um, TensorFlow with, with GPU acceleration and Kafka and all, and all the different types of big data and deep learning and machine learning applications. The reason we were able to do that is because what we did when we first started this is we said we want to run every application unmodified. We don't want to have to modify the application to fit into our infrastructure. We're going to provide an infrastructure that's going to be completely transparent to the application. You'll take an open source application, put it into a Docker container. We will launch that and we'll manage the life cycle of it. You know, we've also now introduced not only deploying big data as a service or machine learning as a service on premise, we have multi-cloud support. So we, we work with Amazon or Azure or, or GCP and this whole hybrid architecture. So that's really where it's taken off. And that's evolved to the Epic platform as, as it exists today, you know, five or six years later, we have this completely automated complex uh, platform solution that you know plugs into enterprises and does automatic security for you it does scaling it it does reliability making sure you can deploy things in ha mode and so forth so this is a very long-winded answer but uh, this is how we evolved from kind of this first idea which caused us to to jump out of vmware and, and form blue data to the to the product that's that's shipping with blue data today yeah i wanted to also just uh, jump in there about a. Uh the idea of the company focus evolving a little bit. Oh, one of the, um, just to avoid confusion, confusion, we were using OpenStack. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, I said OpenShift, because uh, we've been talking about OpenShift recently. But 
yeah, OpenStack was our original platform there. But uh, yeah, like Tom said, we you know any any kind of early stage company is going to shift around a little bit and, and find its focus. And the the whole data path uh, technology, the enabling compute storage separation and and kind of getting past people's fears or conventional wisdom about what would be performant and what wouldn't, was was a, this necessary step to get people into this virtualization of these stateful scale-out apps and get them to kind of accept that this this is another thing you can do virtualization with. You can get all the benefits of virtualization. But once you got past that kind of necessary precondition, the thing that really grabbed people and that they kept uh, coming back to us about was all these orchestration concerns. Like, how do we, how, we want to import this, these dozen different kinds of apps into your platform and take advantage of the way that you allow us to set up these policies so our application experts can set them up for this easy kind of you know, minimal clicks dispatch by our end user data scientists. Uh, we're really uh, interested in your Active Directory and LDAP integration. Um, we really have all these ideas about uh, network isolation features, you know, network isolation between tenants or isolating clusters at particular points in their life cycle. All these other kind of explosion of orchestration features that people latched onto once they were convinced this is a performance platform they could use. And that's what seems to really be driving uh, why people want to adopt Epic and use Epic now for these kinds of applications. So I want to pull on a thread that you uh, that, that you started talking about, which is it, it's kind of a macro theme that is this concept of disaggregating compute from storage in you know data intensive applications and that's traditionally been something that I think we've seen uh, you know many architects from software providers to organizations deploying this stuff have a real heartburn about right that seems very painful and it feels like you made some comments on, on your kind of your design and how you've evolved help me understand why containerization seems to have been, more well received to achieve that end than has been like virtualization because we we've seen in the market that virtualization is still very popular for many critical applications, but it hasn't been as widely adopted for as you said any of the modern machine learning, big data, AI type platforms. Help me understand why containers are interesting and how containers what what problem does a container solve? Sure. Uh Corey, I'll address that first, and then I think Joel can probably also provide some insight because there's a, it's a multi-faceted issue. So, virtual machines, you know, obviously started in the late '90s and then you know took off during the early 2000s, and Hadoop itself and big data kind of came into being in about 2003 with the um, Google paper. And at that time, state of the art for network connectivity was about one gigabit. So it was very difficult to, to pull large amounts of, of data across the network. That's why Hadoop was designed with sharding of data across physical boxes and then doing computation uh, in parallel on subsets of that data and then aggregating the results in a reduced phase. So what, what has actually changed in technology is since 2003, if you take a look at the data center networking hardware, you know, we've moved from one gigabit uh, cards up to 10 gigabit cards. And what we typically see, Blue Data typically sees when we go into an enterprise, we see a minimum of 40 gigabits uh, bandwidth up to 120, 200 uh, gigabits per second bandwidth in these, in these um, enterprise 
network architectures. That means you can move a huge amount of data across that network uh, uh, in a performant fashion. So that's the network is no longer the bottleneck. And to speak to your question, your point about why did the, does containerization of the big data or machine learning application uh, seem to be more popular than running that application on a VM? Well, the, the VM has a virtualized storage subsystem. So when you run Hadoop in a virtual machine, there is a VMDK or a VDisk associated with that um, with that virtual machine. And typically, the data would have to be copied into the virtual disk in that in that virtual machine. And that, that takes time, and then you're also doing, uh, you're going through the storage virtualization stack of the virtual machine. That, both of those, the, the import of the data time and then the, the latency in, inherent in that stack um, contribute to the, to the reduced performance of the application running in a virtual machine. So with containers, you don't have that additional um, storage virtualization stack. You, the, the container, since it's much lighter weight, does not have a vSCSI. It doesn't have a virtual SCSI interface. It doesn't have any sort of uh, vDisk or, or vMDK. Data can reside directly on the physical hardware. So that, that removes a lot of the inserted overhead, which comes from issuing IOs through a virtual machine um, storage stack. And similarly, what Blue Data then, as we, as we pointed out, uh, with our DTAP technology, we have this acceleration that allows uh, storage to, to be remote from, from the, the container itself. And so that, that plugin, that, that plugin which is called the abstract file system class within, within Hadoop, and that we connect to remote HDFS formatted data lakes, that's where we get the additional performance. So I, I think it's just a, a couple of things that, that changed over time. One is the, the network architecture changed and allowed compute and storage to be viable. And two, containers do not have this, do not inject this uh, vSCSI or overhead, virtualization overhead into the storage IO path. Um, so containers are better suited for that. Joel, do you have, do you have anything that yeah. you think might want to add as well to that? Yeah, I think there's one other maybe uh, big effect that's going on. That's the, the question of, you know, people working in this domain, people who are doing experiments, uh, you know, in this particular case, we would say data scientists, uh, people working in AML, what are they going to do on their own hook? You know, what technologies are they going to use to do their own experiments and uh, try try things they see on the internet, go through some best practice or run something that they downloaded? Um, you know, virtual machines really took off because it was was very easy for individual people with like VMware Workstation to to do this sort of thing, experiment with different operating systems, different applications, and much easier to do it with virtual machines than with bare metal. And similarly, especially if you're kind of using the microservices-like model for container. But even if you're using these very heavyweight sort of VM-like containers, it's still easier to do things in a lot of cases with containers than with virtual machines as just an individual user, someone who's, who's you know, building a particular application or doing some experiments. Uh, they're just quicker to start up and shut down. It's quicker to share these things, um, a little easier to use them as black boxes than if you're sharing VM images. And so you have this kind of groundswell ecosystem that builds up of, you know, the people working in this domain want to use containers, and you know, that's kind of the uh, just the way that then the domain tends to go. 
Yes, that's the it's it's in vogue, right? Everybody's using containers for simplicity. So you, you talked about too that the one of the really I think powerful when I've seen the demonstrations of blue data and and seen people deploy it. One of the really powerful things is not only this idea that you've disaggregated the the compute environment from the storage environment, but that you're actually doing Tom what you said, which is this big data as a service. Can you can you explain to to the folks what 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 do you mean when you say big data as a service? Because I don't think that I don't think that's a it's we certainly hear it some, but I don't think it's a broadly used uh, kind of moniker that I think we it, it's worth hearing more about it. Sure. So the, the term AAS as a service is popular with respect to platform as a service or infrastructure as a service. So what we did is, you know, we introduced this this uh, next version or the next step up of that AAS um, kind of paradigm, and that is big data as a service. So we're not talking about just spinning up containers where an application can be installed in the container. And we're not just uh, giving you virtualized network or virtualized storage resources. What Epic, what Blue Data Epic provides you is a full stack of, of software. So in the end, once the cluster, whether that's a cloud era, Hadoop cluster or a, a native Spark cluster or a Kafka cluster, that cl that the services in those containers are ready to go. So that we are deploying not only uh, the, the, the virtual storage, network, compute, memory, GPU resources, the containers, we're also bringing up the application so that all that data scientist has to do after clicking the button on Epic that says stand me up a cluster is use their web browser to, to connect to the, the services on the appropriate IP and port number, and they can then interact with that service just as if they were running it on bare metal or they're running it on their laptop. So that, that's what we were saying is with, with big data as a service, it's not, it's not all the, it's, it's all the infrastructure as well as the big data application itself. Packaged easily for, for somebody to consume, like you said, in a, absolutely and truly an as a service where when we say as a service, it, there's a literal portal that organizations can get from blue data that allows you to, you know, request provisioning of said resources. That's pretty cool. Now it, does it also help because one of the, one of the, one of the reasons why we've seen organizations like to adopt things like containerization standards is for portability, right? For that hybrid cloud, multi-cloud kind of conversation. Does your containerization and your technology around Epic, does it allow or does it have any, you know, enablement for that multi-cloud world that we operate in today? Absolutely. Uh, thanks for that question. So Blue Data, uh, when the Blue Data Epic software ships, we ship with a library of, of pre-defined uh, Docker image files. And those image files define all the software, which is, uh, you know, components of that Docker image. Um, and those containers can be deployed on Linux hosts on-prem. They can be deployed in Amazon instances uh, on EC2. They can be deployed on Azure and, and uh, any other public cloud. And so what that allows is just what you're saying is a customer can use Epic. The data scientist who is using the UI or, or the API from, from Epic, they don't have to be concerned at all about where their containers are deployed. They can be deployed on on-premise uh, resources or public cloud resources. They will not know. 
Um, and so the and the IT organization of that is deploying Epic in, in the enterprise can make that determination on behalf of the data scientist. If the data scientist is working in a development environment, maybe all they're going to get is cloud resources. If the uh, data scientist is working on a production system or a, a QA system, they may want to get uh, resources that are isolated to the data center of the enterprise in order to allow them to have additional security around the data that they access. So. Uh, what, what you bring out is, is a tremendously um, valuable feature of Epic and the whole big data as a service uh, arena. And that is once a stack of software is tested, and these stacks of software are complex, they contain dozens and dozens of different applications that need to work together. They have to have version match. They have to be uh, configured in just the right way so that they work. And once they're established, once they work, then you can automate them across any uh, platform, whether it's public cloud or private cloud, so that that's the real value that Blue Data brings, and we do all the uh, the networking and storage hiding, so that the 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 ultimate data user itself would never be uh, have to worry about you know logging into AWS or getting a a, a Google account. Hey, Tom, uh, this is Rob. So I have two questions for you. So the, f the first builds on what you just talked about. So uh, your catalog and things that you have sort of. Uh, available that things you've pre-tested pre and made and packaged and have available. How easy is it for someone who's running your application to build their own custom image so that they could, they could deploy kind of in their own way? And secondly, uh, and maybe get to this a little bit after, after that question is what's, what is the orchestration model underneath look like? So once I've deployed something out of the catalog, how, do, how does it get orchestrated or need to be, to be deployed? Okay. So to address that first question, it's quite easy for a customer of, of Epic to, to generate their own Docker image files. What we learned almost immediately is when we went into this um, uh, customer acquisition mode where we were talking to enter enterprise customers, they all have their own versions of software. They might have a special version of Hadoop or a, a kind of a modified version of Spark, or they may have a, a special business analytic tool. And um, as I said earlier, we run all applications unmodified. So Blue Data provides a set of tools, and we actually call it our, our workbench, which allows the customer to take our example Docker image files and generate their own with whatever software they have in. So if they have a special analytic tool or a version of a Hadoop that they like, they can easily construct a uh, Docker image file, drop that onto the Epic server, and then it will automate the uh, lifecycle of the clusters that are generated from that particular image file. And then that, that steps directly into your, to your second question about the orchestration. I think what you're getting at here is, you know, what, what is the container orchestrator mechanism that Blue Data uses to, to deploy these containers across these public and uh, private resources. And so you have to remember, Blue Data started six years ago. Six years ago, there was no Kubernetes. There was a little bit of, of Docker Swarm starting to be used, and there was maybe just some uh, Mesos container operator, uh, container orchestrator code around. So what Blue Data did is we, we developed our own. We developed our own con 
container deployer, uh, also known as a container orchestrator. And that is code which goes out and looks at all the resources, the physical resources on the public, on the hosts or, or on the public cloud, selects the appropriate location to deploy the container, deploys the container, and then brings up the application. So we have, at Blue Data, have been always tracking state-of-the-art technology. So we were watching Docker Swarm, we were watching Mesos as it evolved, and we've certainly been watching Kubernetes as it has evolved. And so what we have seen is that Kubernetes, the, the features of, of Kubernetes, uh, Container Orchestrator, are we feel are almost sufficient now to, to meet the container orchestration needs of our big data applications. And that was that's what Cube Director is all about. So um, I can go into to a, a detail of what the open source initiatives are that are that Blue Data is is pushing forward around Kubernetes and enhancing Kubernetes to support um, stateful applications. But I like Joel. Do you have a comment that you want to make before we kind of kick off our discussion around? kind of what, what Blue Data is bringing to the open source communi uh, community in terms of expertise around running stateful applications. Yeah, I can add a little bit more to what Rob was asking about. And it's also, I mean, these are this whole question of orchestration and how do you prepare applications for use in these platforms. It's, it's very similar to what we are going to be doing in Kubernetes. So it's uh, maybe kind of a bridge topic. Um, you had asked how easy it was for people to bring applications into the platform. And, and Tom had mentioned earlier that we, you know, we, one of our principles is that you're going to use an unmodified application, but for it to be deployed through our service correctly, because our, you know, Epic is application agnostic. Everything it does is data driven for the particular applications. So you not only want to create a Docker image that has your software on it and you want that software kind of been, you know, as installed as possible for quick bring up and just some last, you maybe you just need some last runtime configuration, like plugging some FQDN host names into some template config files somewhere. But you have this Docker image with your software ready to go on it. Then you also, as, a, as an author, as someone using this workbench, you create this metadata file that describes your application to our management service. It says, here's, here's the services it exposes on these ports. Um, you know, here's, here's a list of choices you should expose to the end user who's deploying this, and here's how these choices affect those services. Um, here's some minimum required uh, you know, memory or CPU. Uh, a lot of different things can, can potentially go into this metadata file, but it, it generally just describes the, the deployment of the containers that are going to contain the application, like maybe there's some anti-affinity placement requirements between different components, things like that. And then the third thing the author provides is a an implementation of a, a script that will run inside the container and be invoked by us at different lifecycle events. So we're, you know, we're going to bring up the containers and then we're going to call into this script that the application importer has provided and say, hey, you're, you're a new container now inside this new cluster and here's a bunch of information about the deployment. And then it's the responsibility of that script to start up services. And we provide these other mechanisms uh, if there needs to be a very advanced or... Um, you know, synchronization between the different nodes, like start up this service first, then copy these packages over, then start this other service. We provide a lot of tools for doing that synchronization, for doing remote command execution securely between the nodes, for doing remote file copy. So there's all these sorts of things that goes inside the containers after they bring up the containers, because you know just sequencing the containers in some order is not sufficient. 
So the, the person who uses the workbench basically has to provide these three artifacts. There's the, the container image, the metadata, and this script that responds to lifecycle events. And then they, the workbench bundles those up, gives it to you in a form that you can use to import, um, import into your own Epic platform. So you can, you, know, you can have your own catalog of apps uh, in addition to or instead of the ones that we provide. And it's always a trade-off between you know, providing, providing something like this. It's always a trade-off between what sort of power and flexibility do you want to support, do you, do you find that you need, versus how much complexity do you expose people to. And we're constantly working on that balance. We definitely, though, have customers that dive right into this and start cranking out their own images, or especially just modifying existing ones, you know, taking existing images and metadata, and you know, maybe they, they have this Cloudera image that they want to update to the next version. So that's a kind of an incremental tweak they can do to the existing things. And so some of our customers, especially our bigger customers, who are the, the, the people we're interacting with are kind of the IT folks who are serving internal customers in turn, uh, are really getting into this um, idea of developing their own customized applications to meet their own requirements uh, inside their organization. Excellent. So, so now we've got, so we have Epic, which we've, we understood is, is, there's some unique technology around uh, the disaggregation of storage from compute that's specifically interesting for data-intensive applications. You've got this Docker-based containerization platform built for big data as a service. But, Tom, I want to pull on the thread that you, you hit on there, which is this this thing that's happened over the last five, six years, which is um, – Containers have, have been growing in terms of adoption, but one of the things that's grown, I think, uh, in parallel that, that you said was interesting is the container orchestration technology. And I think most of us, you know, that have kind of watched this market are pretty aware that Kubernetes seems to be winning the, the container orchestration game. So help me understand this this recent announcement that, that that Blue Data has had around your integration with Kubernetes. Let's 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 dig into that because I think that's a really unique story that you're you're you had this uh, proprietary way of uh, orchestrating previously because it wasn't there, but now you're absolutely being open in the open source community. So I'd love to hear more about it. Sure. Okay. So yes, as we've we've spoken about, obviously uh, Kubernetes has gained market share. It has had tremendous contribution from the open source community. Uh, but let's, let's go back to the beginning. Uh, Kubernetes, as a container orchestrator, was designed for stateless applications. Now, you can hear the term stateless, you can hear the term microservice, you can hear cloud-native architecture. All those words refer to a certain type of application that has no state. And that thing is a, that, that kind of application is perfect for running in a container. A container is super lightweight. You just want to run code in there and you can do aggressive horizontal scalability by just spinning up additional copies or instances of that application. So it's completely, it's completely stateless. Those applications talk to a remote database or perhaps to a remote file system to get whatever small amounts of data uh, they require. And these are web services, web applications typically. And that's what Kubernetes was designed for, and that's what uh, uh, you know Google was using it for originally. But over the years, we've seen, okay, yeah, the Kubernetes and containerization is a perfect platform for deploying 
stateless applications. Now people are saying, hey, we can take the same technology and apply it to stateful applications. Well, there are no more stateful applications in the world than big data AI and ML applications. Those are all about state. They are heavy configura uh, configura configuration applications. So over time, we have watched Kubernetes open source community add things like persistent volumes. They've added things like stateful sets, even the concept of a pod. All are incremental improvements or features that are being added to Kubernetes to make them um, to make the Kubernetes uh, orchestrator easier to manage stateful applications. And in fact, there's a, a thing called an operator, and, and Joel is actually describing when he was outlining all the pieces of metadata and image and actions that need to be put together when um, bringing up an application. That's basically the same concepts that are embedded in what's known as a Kubernetes operator. Okay. What we have found, and we've been doing a gap analysis between all this, is okay, how far away is, is Kubernetes from actually being able to support a heavy stateful application that's not written in cloud native architecture? Hadoop and Spark and Kafka and TensorFlow and all these applications are written in what's called a monolithic architecture. They have collections of services that are tightly integrated. Those services cannot be broken out easily to be run in different individual containers. So what Blue Data is doing is making, we're taking a kind of a pragmatic approach to this whole thing. We see people, enterprises, using monolithic applications. They want to run these monolithic applications on Kubernetes, which they're already starting to deploy in their enterprises to run their stateless applications. And they're saying, they're asking us, hey, I've put in this architecture, Kubernetes is working great for me for stateless applications. Can you guys make my stateful applications run on same of this, the same architecture so that I can share physical resources between my stateless applications and my stateful big data AI ML applications? And that's the challenge. And we've been watching, like I say, over very closely how uh, Kubernetes has been evolving. And what we've actually seen is that we think we're really close now. And, you know, Blue Data is a, is a private company. This is our first venture into open source. And so, you know, as a company, we decided we have a lot of technology. We have a lot of expertise that we have built up. And we're going to push Kubernetes over the edge to make it work great, not only for stateful applications, but all, excuse me, stateless applications, but also for stateful. And so that's what this whole big blue K8S initiative is, which we announced back in July. And that is Blue Data is, is starting to, to uh, contribute software into the Apache Foundation for use with Kubernetes to enhance the Kubernetes support for stateful applications. Okay, and then the first effort here is something called Cube Director. It's the first project that we have opened under the Blue K8S initiative. And this Cube Director project is to make it much easier, actually uh, unnecessary, for a application author who wants to run Spark or a big data application on a Kubernetes cluster to not have to write an application-specific operator because that's a very de detailed and very and challenging uh, coding effort unless you're a Kubernetes expert. And it's, it's difficult to be both a Kubernetes expert and 
a data scientist who's an expert at Spark or Hadoop or, or Kafka. So what we're doing is we're making it easier for the data scientist-centric developer to, to, to use what is effectively a, a Kubernetes operator to instantiate their big data cluster on a Kubernetes environment. Th there will be follow-on um, projects to the, to the Blue K8S initiative. They'll be around, you know, persistent volumes. Now, persistent volumes are great, okay? They, they, they are a way for a volume of storage to be associated with a container and live beyond the life cycle or the lifespan of a running container. This is a huge step forward in terms of persistence. However, one of the issues with um, persistent volumes today is that it cannot be mounted on Slash. This is kind of a, a geeky thing, but it cannot be mounted on the root of the container. Now, most of, well, all of today, Hadoop and Spark and the big data applications assume they can write into Slash and that the data written into the root file system will be persisted. Okay, well, unfortunately, that's a disconnect between what is the feature that's currently available and known as persistent volumes in Kubernetes and what the persistent storage that's required or needed by the big data application. So after we, we get our Cube Director project underway here, we're going to address that and, and I'll provide a, a mechanism for users of containers on Kubernetes to persist their root volumes in addition to the, their ancillary volumes, which are supported today by persistent volume claims. Can I add a little bit to that? Yeah, um, go for it. So yeah, Kube Director, as Tom says, the main, the I guess the main thing that that should grab people about it is that it's application agnostic. That it like this this uh, kind of process that I went through a few minutes ago. The application author, the application expert, uh, not even necessarily the author of the application, but just someone who's an expert in it who wants to import it into this platform. You know, they're responsible of for making a description of it that says how this is going to work, how it should be deployed, and then this service, Cube Director, can deploy it. Uh, it, if you want to upgrade your application versions, if you want to move to a, a newer release, you don't have to upgrade your your controller that's deploying them, so you don't have to potentially go through any operational interruption. Um, and uh, kind of a less obvious advantage of having this application agnostic view is that you have this uh, single controller with its own API and its own set of features managing potentially many different types of applications. And so uh, when you need to get into making those applications cooperate, you know, put, build them into pipelines, have them share common resources like uh, common data sources that are you managing the credentials for these and allowing certain people to access them. We're setting up you know, Active Directory LF integration for accounts in these clusters and making different groups of those and applying those groups to different clusters. All these sorts of this sorts of this sort of shared context that you want to set up once and then use on a lot of different applications. You know, it's it's not impossible to do that if you have a different management solution for all these applications, but it just makes it much easier if you have this single management solution working with this unified data model that's having all these shared resources and features that can be applied to all these different applications. And then also, you know, because these things are these monolithic applications that Tom described, if you're going to bring them up properly and you have this, maybe these ordering issues and what you bring up where on the different application, uh, within the different application nodes. So it's not just an issue of how you order the bring up of the nodes themselves. 
then you need this assistance for um, synchronizing and managing that bring-up sequence and dealing with these lifecycle events in the cluster. Like, what happens if I if I bring in a new node to the cluster? I need to notify these other nodes in the cluster about that, and they need to change their configurations in certain ways. Um, all these things that you can implement once in a fairly application-agnostic model and then apply it to whatever application people care to um, generate the metadata for to make it usable with KubeDirector. It's interesting. So I so I want to make sure I understand this because uh, I, I, this I'm not this isn't abundantly clear to me. So Blue K eights is an initiative that that Blue Data is is embarking on to uh, to progress some of the abilities of Kubernetes to orchestrate these monolithic, data intensive, stateful applications. Is that that's right? Yes, but, that's correct. So then, but my question is 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 this is this happening outside of the context of the Epic platform? Like this is something that if an organization has a, just a large scale Kubernetes orchestrated container environment that they could actually use cube director, uh, abstracted away from a last from, from, from Epic, or is this, this is a feature that's bringing Kubernetes, uh, orchestration into the Epic platform. Yeah. Um, so that's a great question. Let me, um, back up to a little bit of a higher view of KubeDirector for a second. So there's a, the concept of a custom controller already exists in the Kubernetes world and custom resources. You can extend the Kubernetes API and say, there's going to be these other kinds of resources you can create through the Kubernetes API, and then I'm going to define this other service that's going to do things in response to those resources being created or edited. That, so this is not a new concept, and it's... it's um, when people talk about operators, that's a kind of custom controller that people use for for managing these application clusters. And then KubeDirector is, is another thing that, that acts in that space. So we're talking about uh, another service authored by us to work as a Kubernetes custom controller. So it's not Epic. Uh, it doesn't require you know deploying Epic into Kubernetes or anything like that. It's its, it's own completely separate thing, but its duties as a custom controller to, to orchestrate this application bring up involve a lot of the same concerns and responsibilities and lessons learned and gotchas and et cetera that we went through with Epic. So uh, once, especially once you get into the nitty gritty of, okay, my containers are up now, how do I bring up the application? Uh, how do I monitor it? How do I deal with, with failures? How do I submit jobs and scripts and stuff to it? Once the containers exist, uh, a lot of the process is the same as what we did in Epic, but it's, you know, it's its own thing. We're, we're bringing over some expertise, but there's no direct code that's flowing over. There's no, uh, you, know, you don't have to buy Epic or anything like that. Right. And that's, let me try to, to try, try to clarify that because these are a number of different issues that we're dealing with. There's product issues, there are project issues, and then there's kind of the open source. And, and you raise a very good question, Corey. This can be confusing uh, to understand what blue data is actually driving at here. So as Epic, excuse me, as, as Joel has pointed out, the Cube Director software is an open source project. It is independent of Epic. And our intention is for us to, for, for users to be able to go to a the GitHub repo, download the Cube Director code, and use it to help automate a, or bring up a, 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 a 
big data or Spark or, or machine learning cluster on any Kubernetes deployment. That's, that's completely separate from, from Epic. Epic over time, as the Kube director technology evolves, as these other technologies that I discussed around how persistent volumes will work and so forth, they will be incorporated into future versions of Epic. So Epic itself, right now being proprietary code, we will use Cube Director. We will use these other projects under Blue K8S, uh, and we will deploy them and support them in an enterprise class environment. So this is the common way that companies use open source. They provide open source for, for those customers and those users who want to use that open source. They also provide fully supported licensed versions, which may have additional features uh, that's built upon that open source that they then sell to their customers. Okay, that that makes a lot of sense to me because that's what that's what I th that's what my my original thought was, and I, I like that because it's good for everybody. And I think this is, in my mind, this is an example of of in, in, interacting with the open source community in a way that is genuine, right? It's it's good for the open source community because you're bringing what is a, a lot of experience dealing with building stateful applications on containers, orchestrating those well, creating this as a service type model that I would argue that, you know, and especially based on the sessions that we've seen at, at things like Spark and AI Summit and others, that is, it's absolutely needed, right? The market's asking for it. There's plenty of people that want, like as you said, uh, they want this capability. And not all of them will be blue data customers, but you're bringing that to the open source community. I think that's brilliant. But I also, I think what I hear is that this is great for you because now you as blue data, you know, the royal you, you're, you're getting more and more experience with Kubernetes. You're getting tied into the community. Your skills go up so that Epic as it evolves over time and as those, those baseline technologies uh, kind of per, you know, move forward, they help you get better. So that that's really neat. I, I, I like that genuine, like it's good for everybody approach to it. So I'm curious though, like is, is it seems crazy that, that there's not already like an open source, you know, project out there, you know, where somebody in Kubernetes or somebody at Google hasn't already figured this out. Is this, have y'all have looked, is there another project that's similar to this that, that you think you can team up with? Or is this a completely new concept that you're embarking on? I mean, there are uh, other projects out there. I mean, people often say, well, can't I do this with Helm and Helm charts? And there are other, you know, automation um, kind of overlay projects on top of, of Kubernetes that do, do make this easier. But, but we really haven't found yet uh, another open source project that addresses this specific issue of allowing application neutral so there's two, there's two pieces here. Let me try to back up. We are talking about non-cloud native architected applications. So they're monolithic applications. And we want to orchestrate the uh, automation in a, in a manner that is mostly application independent. And then those two things together, we haven't yet seen uh, in an open project or open source project with Kubernetes. And so that's why we started Cube Director. Very cool. Now, so you're, this is a big announcement happened in July. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing you, 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 you and the team will be making the rounds at some of the, uh, the big conferences here in the next few months. Are you attending any in particular? 
Yeah, certainly our next big conference will be Estrada in, in, in New York City in September. Um, Anand Chittamaneni, who is our product manager for Blue Data uh, Epic, will be having a discussion just about this. There'll be a session on, on Kubernetes, be and it will contain information on, on our um, uh, Blue K8S initiative, and then in particular, the, the Cube Director. Uh, we have a meetup, I think it's scheduled for October uh, in San Francisco with the Kubernetes uh, community there to, to, to bring this out. We have a webinar that we're doing, uh, I think next Tuesday, uh, which is a Blue Data specific thing, but we'll also be drilling in uh, into details around uh, Blue, Blue K8S and, and Cube Director. Excellent. So we'll we'll absolutely put in the show notes the uh, the GitHub repos for uh, for Cube Director. Um, so I'm curious, Tom, in your seat as as a as a gentleman who's been um, you know founder of a tech company, you've been in tech for a long time, um, working in some pretty emerging areas. I'm curious, what do you think's like? What are the the big trends that you're watching in this in this um, you know in this big data AI machine learning space? Just macro, big picture stuff. Sure. You know, I, this is really interesting because like um, when we started Blue Data, you know, we were we were looking at Hadoop version 1.0, right? Just simple MapReduce, and we've watched Yarn come in, and then the Yarn was kind of replaced more or less by Spark, and then now we have a whole rich uh, ecosystem of AI and uh, ML deep learning tools. But I'm really look very interested that the, the rate of, um, of, of learning, the rate of development is really accelerated. And what I'm kind of interested in next, and I've just been doing the last couple of weeks is, hey, this whole concept of function as a service, you know, our, will, will we eventually actually not really even care about containers? Will we evolve to the next um, uh, kind of technological revolution will blue data will blue data and will be big data and AI will they be able to take uh, advantage of you know of um, functions as a service where the application itself just makes a series of function calls to some existing services and does its analysis based on the results of that that's kind of what I'm looking at as as the next um, wave to to take over in this area. Yeah, I can imagine more abstractions. Although it's you know the <laughs> you're probably going to face in those areas for adoption similar oh, yes. you know similar uh, challenges we've seen within a uh, with the <laughs> the abstractions you've already uh, started to implement with Blue right. Data with the the things around disaggregation of, of storage and compute. So that's that's super cool. So hey, I, I really appreciate you guys spending some time with us to talk about uh, really how Blue Data's evolving not only your product but evolving your relationship with the open source and really focusing on bringing uh, Kubernetes forward and and being the orchestration tool of choice for stateful uh, monolithic data intensive applications I, I really appreciate it and I, I encourage folks to to check out their links check out the, re, the the github repo and and let us give us some feedback on what you're seeing but I do want to shift gears uh, gents Tom and Joel it's it's been fun to chat with you but about tech but now we want to talk a little bit personal. You all should definitely check out Strata Data Conference happening September 11th through 13th in New York City. At this conference, you'll learn how data is driving innovation and transforming businesses. You'll hear from top minds in technology and leading companies like Airbnb, Google, WeWork, and Uber. You'll also network with thousands at the largest gathering of technologists and business leaders working with data. Save 20% with our passcode, PCBeard, at checkout. We've learned a lot from our guests about big data, but now it's time to get a bit personal. In a segment we like to call Rapid Fire. Pew, pew. 
So let's get started. First question, Tom, we'll start with you. What year will Skynet go online? Um, I, I don't think it'll be much before 2030. I, I think, you know, AI and ML, uh, what we have now is more automated decision-making. To get a true Skynet, we need to move beyond automated decision-making and actually have it think for itself. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with that. The AI today is, is what... I think we classify as narrow AI, right? It's 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 pretty narrow in task and function, and I don't I don't I think Elon Musk's uh, concerns may be overstated. Uh, what about you, Joel? When do you think Skynet goes online? Well, I know there's a canonical answer, and I feel bad for not knowing it. Um, <laughs> the one that's in the movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. I I think that if there's any sort of like explosive emergent complexity in the internet and all of the functionality that we're putting online and communicating with each other, it'll be more weird and less concerned with us than most science fiction authors think. Nice. Okay. So Joel, if you could, uh, if you could recommend a book that you've read recently to us, what would it be? Hmm. You know, I was on a camping trip last week and I, I took a book along with me that, uh, my brother-in-law kept teasing me, saying I was reading my textbook, you know, sitting around the sitting around the campfire. But it was a cool book. It's called *The Grammar of Architecture*, and it's just a a um, kind of survey of forms of things that people build over the centuries. And it's it's kind of kind of humbling, kind of interesting, just to see, uh, you know, the massive things that people in India, for example, were carving out of mountainside rock thousands of years ago. Um, Very cool. Tom, what about you? What book? Uh, what book would you recommend? I don't have anything nearly as cerebral as as Joel Joel puts forward. I, I was just thinking. I've been reading a book called The Season of the Witch, and this is um, a story or a retrospective of San Francisco in the Bay Area and somewhat in Silicon Valley. And uh, I, I find it just fascinating to to read about things that happened in my lifetime. So I would recommend that one. Very cool, Tom. What kind of what genre of music are you rocking out to these days? Uh, I actually eclectic. I like you know eighties rock, obviously being from that era. I certainly enjoy that, but I also enjoy uh, a classical music as well. So I, I have a, a wide variety that I, I like. Very cool, Joe. What about you? I guess I guess uh, in between the. Moana soundtrack on repeat in our house, which is not my fault. <laughs> I've been listening to it. Yes. Uh, oh, that's a, that's a dad life answer right there. <laughs> there's a, a kind of um, small, uh, small group or, or single person electronica. Like there's a lot of, a lot of artists that are like working on independent game soundtracks these days that are, they're cranking out a lot of really idiosyncratic things. You'll just see it on Bandcamp or whatever. So I keep running across links to those and just leaving them on repeat in a browser tab. Oh, very cool. All right. So, uh, Joel, what piece of technology is currently making your life worse? <laughs> uh, the automobile. <laughs> okay. Sorry, but Bay Area, Bay Area commutes. Uh, it's, it's oh, I can only imagine. Okay. What about you, Tom? What's, what's technology is making your life worse? Uh, okay, sure. And this is good. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll leave proper nouns out of this. But um, so I've been putting a, a new security system in my house and I was using a startup company uh, to actually do that. And uh, just having all the pieces hang together. So inter internet connectivity, uh, cameras, motion detectors, 
audio, kind of all all the things I can see. I can see the struggle of this startup company, you know, experiencing the same sort of you know growing pains that Blue Data experienced. So uh, that that's my current technology struggle. That's awesome. So Tom, what is your current uh, biggest personal money pit right now? Wow. Um, my, Sounds like security systems might be it. That, that's, that's probably not it. Uh, but um, uh, I would say, okay, my, my wife is uh, is an artist, uh, an oil painter, and and so I think our, our biggest probably kind of discretionary money pit would be uh, would be around that is you know uh, supplies, uh, training, education, um, events, that sort of thing. Or, oh, that's well, that's at least cool though. It's yeah. good for. It's, Good for the wife and happy wife. Happy absolutely, life. absolutely. Joel, what about you? What's uh, what's taking all your disposable income? Hmm. Besides I, I guess, living in the Bay Area, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I guess you know, trips. I, you know, I mentioned the camping trip last week. Um, we we try to have like a, a major vacation every year, so we we aim for that to be our money pit. Um, so far, so good. Good for you. So you like to travel. So tell us, uh, are you going anywhere interesting soon, Joel? Going to shoot for Greece in the spring. It's a oh, very cool place we've wanted to go. You know, haven't ever really been to that part of the world. And, uh, it's, it's beautiful. We have. Uh, I have a good family friend who she uh, the, the the lady married a guy from Greece. She had moved over after college and married a, a Greek guy. And so we actually spent a couple of weeks in Greece with some locals on the island of Corfu, and oh. it was just awesome. The Greek people are are great. Very good. Pickpockets I mean, are pretty good in Athens, so you got to be yeah. careful about the pickpockets. But it's a beautiful country. I'm, I'm what about you? To, to pick your brain a little bit. Yeah, man, happy to talk about it. Tom, what about you? Are you going anywhere interesting or cool? Sure. Well, I think uh, later this summer we have uh, a tour plan. We're going to do a, a bike and, and barge tour uh, on a river in the Netherlands where you bicycle through the countryside and you meet up with your barge every every evening and you visit the towns along the way. So we're looking forward to that. Very cool. That sounds like fun. I love the Netherlands. Beautiful country. All right. Last question. What show are you currently binging on? Tom? Actually, that I'm terrible. I I don't watch TV. I'm 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 serious. I there there is there is nothing that I could tell you that would be even remotely topical uh, on, <laughs> on, on on television. I'm sorry. That's totally good. What about you, Joel? You watch anything interesting? Yeah. Well, so my wife and I were were chewing through the the Great British Bake Off on Netflix, uh, but we ran out of episodes on that. Um, and because of some you know recent events, we we have been looking back through some of the back catalog of Anthony Bourdain shows. So yeah, there you go. Well, if you ever get bored, or if you ever want to go to the British Bake Off, the Aussie, the Great Australian Bake Off is also good, and the yeah. accents are pretty similar. Right, cool. <laughs> we watched that when we were in Australia. So that's good. All right, gentlemen. Well, I will tell you what, it has been uh, it's been a pleasure to to talk with you both. It's been uh, interesting to hear the evolution of. Uh, again, what I think is one of the more interesting companies in big data today, uh, Blue Data, doing some great things to not only make their product better uh, by leveraging the evolution of technology around Kubernetes, but also uh, bringing their intelligence and their learned experiences back to the open source community to help make Kubernetes even more relevant to these stateful big data applications. So Tom and Joel, thank you so much for the time, and we'd uh, look forward to talking with you again soon on the Big Data Beard. Thanks for listening to the Big Data Beard Podcast.